If you've been following international news at all recently, it's kind of been an interesting month in the country of Poland. A month ago, legislation passed a near-total ban on abortion, which has met uh, a lot of pushback in the international community. It's met a lot of pushback in Poland in particular. Protesters have flooded the streets, and here's some of the things that they've been saying, thousands of them. The matter's simple to me. I want to have my rights and choice, and I think everybody thinks similarly here, and we have to support one another. Someone carried a sign that said, it's a right, not an ideology. Another person carried a sign that said, this is war. Somebody else stated, it's important to me to be here because women's rights are being trampled. Now, as thousands upon thousands of protesters that poured into the streets of Warsaw, we could summarize their, their thoughts, their ideology in this way. They're fighting, they believe they're fighting for human rights. They are fighting for social justice. Now, those two words are their buzzword in our society today. Social justice is just about as trendy as Jarek's sense of style. Did you see those kicks he was wearing tonight? But when we think about that situation in Poland, how should we respond? I mean, it, it reveals a glaring discrepancy between the secular worldview and the Christian worldview. Because when I think about Poland's ban on ab- abortion, I think that's justice, not injustice. As I heard Jim, one of our leaders, say last week, it's hard to imagine anyone more innocent than an unborn baby. But it reveals, even more than a contradiction in worldviews, it reveals a difference between what we might call biblical social justice and our culture's view of social justice. I think we might be surprised when we look at Scripture how often the concept of justice, even how often the idea of social justice lines the pages of Scripture. And our text tonight, our prophet tonight, is no exception. But if we just desire to connect ourselves to a social justice initiative that's not connected to any broader worldview or any deeper framework, then we're just going to follow the winds of our culture, desiring to be on the right side of history without a deeper connection to the Christian worldview, without a deeper connection to what God desires. When we talk about social justice, we desperately need God's perspective. And tonight, we're going to find that in the book of Amos. So if you have your Bibles or your smartphones, either one's fine. Turn with me to the book of Amos. It's a great minor prophet, right after the book of Joel. It's interesting. Amos, he wasn't a king. He wasn't a prophet. He wasn't a priest. He wasn't wealthy. He didn't have power. The text tells us that Amos was a herder of sheep, a keeper of cattle, and a tender of figs. (laughs) So basically, you round that together, Amos was a farmer. He was about as ordinary of a guy as it comes. 
He was from Tekoa, which was kind of this sleepy farm town in, uh, in, in Judah, just south of Jerusalem. And he wrote this book probably about 760 B.C., and he was writing to a culture just like Hosea. Remember, Hosea is writing to a world that everything was going great. They were prosperous. They had a ton of money, but they were running further and faster away from the Lord. That was the culture that Amos is, is preaching to. And God commands Amos to go and preach to the ten northern tribes, even though he was from the two southern tribes in Judah. Later in the book of Amos, he's confronted by a man named Amaziah, and Amos rehearses his call to ministry, and this is what he says in chapter 7, verse 14. I wasn't a prophet, nor a prophet's son. I was a herdsman. I was a dresser of sycamore figs, but the Lord took me from following the flock and said to me, go and prophesy to my people Israel. I mean, just picture what this would have been like for Amos. He's out in the field, keeping watch over his flocks by night. And the Lord, that's a different story, I guess, isn't it? And the Lord comes to him and and commands him, Amos, I want you to go and and preach to the, the people in the north. And Amos looks over his shoulder and he's like, wait, me? I'm a farmer. I'm an ordinary guy. Did I just have too much coffee last night? Like, what's going on? This can't be possible. God can't be talking to me. And God says, no, I'm, I'm talking to you. I want you. I've chosen you, Amos, to go to the north and preach a message of repentance to the northern tribes of Israel. So Amos hops on his horse and takes the trek up north to the big city. This one professor said, this is Farmer Amos going to the big city. And he would have been out of place. It wouldn't quite have looked normal. I mean, picture this. I'll use this as an example. I think it was last week, Clay and Turner rode their snowmobiles to young adults, and it was awesome. I can't think of a better way to come to young adults on a Monday night. And they had their snowmobile gear on. I mean, imagine this. What if Clay and Turner showed up on the Magnificent Mile on Michigan Avenue in Chicago wearing their snowmobile suits? I mean, that would look totally out of place. Think of all the heads that would turn of all these businessmen, all these powerful people thinking, these guys clearly aren't from Chicago. That's exactly how it would have worked with Amos. He's got his buckwheat in his mouth, his cowboy boots on, his cowboy hat on. He's walking down the street and all these heads are turning thinking, this guy is not from around here. This guy is not one of us. Amos is walking right down the main street of Bethel and he sees this platform right down, downtown, and he thinks, that's where I'm going to go. That's where I'm going to stand. I'm going to start preaching my sermon. And he gets up, and he starts to preach. And everyone around him is thinking, man, this is going to be funny. We've got a farm, farm boy who's going to come and preach a message of repentance. This is going to be comical. And all of these people start listening, not because they're excited about a sermon, but because they think it's going to be a fun comedy routine. But he throws them a nice curveball. And he captivates them by the message of his sermon, but not because he was preaching to them, because he was preaching to all of their enemies. Look at chapter 1, verse 3. This is the beginning of his sermon. For thus says the Lord, for three transgressions of Damascus, and for four, I will not revoke punishment. It's interesting. He says three transgressions and four. It's what we would call a graduated numerical saying. It was something that was kind of common in prophecy and in poetry. And some people think that that just means that the the fourth uh, sin in the list was the most emphatic. It was the worst. That's possible. I actually think that's just a way uh, that Hebrew used to, to say that the list was incomplete. Now, certainly, there were more than four sins that Damascus had committed against the Lord, but God 
only chooses a couple to list here. And Damascus was the capital of Aram, an enemy of the people of Israel. And the people who are hearing the message, they cheer and they shout, amen, this is great. He's pronouncing judgment on our enemies up in Damascus. And then he keeps going. Thus says the Lord, for three transgressions of Gaza and for four, I will not revoke punishment. You know Gaza because you know the story of David and Goliath, the Philistines. That's where they lived. They hated the Philistines for years and years, for decades and for centuries. And God's promising judgment on Gaza. And he continues and condemns Tyre. They're condemned for the slave trade, just like Gaza. And he keeps going and he condemns uh, the Ammonites. He condemns Edom. He condemns Moab. And the people are getting louder. And there's more and more people gathering and cheering and shouting and saying, Amen, this is great. Keep pronouncing judgment on our enemies. And then it gets even closer to home. Look at chapter 2, verse 4. Thus says the Lord, for three transgressions of Judah and for four, I will not revoke punishment. Remember that Amos is preaching to Israel, the ten northern tribes. And then he says, I'm going to bring judgment on Judah. Your blood brothers that you hate to the south, they're going to get punished too because they have not obeyed my statutes. And people are cheering and they're screaming and they love this sermon because it's the best one they've ever heard. But for the astute listener they realized that Amos was up to something. He was preaching a geographic circle around the nation of Israel so that every time they cheered, condemning their enemies, they were actually condemning themselves. It was called the rhetoric of entrapment. This is actually the map of his sermon. Maybe we can throw that up on the screen. There's Israel, and he goes all the way around in the circle and preaches against all of their enemies, which basically leaves them convicted. Because they've condemned everyone else, it leaves them condemned. And when Amos brings out his sermon against the people of Israel, he doesn't hold back any punches. Look at chapter 2, verse 6. Thus says the Lord, for three transgressions of Israel and for four, I will not revoke punishment because they sell the righteous for silver, the needy for a pair of sandals, and those who trample the head of the poor into the dust of the earth, and turn aside the way of the afflicted. Well, did you notice what Amos didn't say? He didn't say, I'm condemning Israel because they worshipped idols, or they forgot the Sabbath, or or they didn't go to church. What does he say? Because they sold the righteous for silver, the needy for a pair of sandals, they trampled the heads of the poor, they turned aside the way of the of the afflicted, what sin are they guilty of committing? Injustice, marginalization, oppression. They're taking advantage of the poor. And this theme of justice, it wasn't just in these two verses in Amos. It's mentioned over 20 times throughout the entire book. If we had to pick a one-word theme for Amos, it'd be easy. It'd be justice. Because Amos himself lived in this two-class society. They were the really rich and they were the really poor. And the wealthy were taking advantage of the poor. And Amos was a farmer. He was not in the rich class. He was in the poor class. There wouldn't have been a better messenger to preach this message to the people than a man like Amos, who knew the atrocities of the wealthy, who knew the injustice, who certainly had experienced it. He knew the pain. And Amos accuses the wealthy of selling the righteous for silver, which sounds a little bit like slavery, but I don't think that's what was happening here. It's different than the slave trade of Tyre and Gaza condemned previously. 
But to understand what this means, we actually have to understand the Old Testament law. Now, when an Israelite had a debt that was unpaid to another Israelite, this Israelite could have the first Israelite work as an indentured servant for up to seven years as a way to pay off the debt. But at the end of the seven years, then each one of those indentured servants needed to be set free. And that was allowed within the law. I mean, imagine what that would look like today. Imagine if somebody has credit card debt that they're just not paying off and the credit card company can force them to work for them until they pay off the debt. I think there'd be a little less credit card debt in our country if that was the case. But what happened is the wealthy were taking advantage of a system that was allowed within the law. They were perverting justice for injustice. We see that in chapter 5, verse 12. For I know how many are your transgressions and how great are your sins who afflict the righteous, who take a bribe, who turn aside the needy in the gate. It's interesting. Turning aside the needy in the gate, afflicting the righteous or the innocent, taking a bribe. Now, the word gate in this passage, maybe a synonym in our world today would be like the courthouse. That was the place where maybe a judge or a jury would hear a trial. And here's how this would work. And you know, in my made-up story, I need a bad guy. I certainly know who that's going to be. It's the person who made all of you boo me two weeks ago. So we'll make Fritz the uh, antagonist in our story. So let's say Fritz is the wealthy landowner, and I am the poor, innocent farmer. And Fritz thinks, you know, it sounds like a great idea to make Sam an indentured servant in my house for the next seven years. So Fritz comes up with this elaborate story of how I borrowed $50,000 from him and didn't pay him back. And the day before the trial is supposed to happen, he goes up to the judge, knocks on his door and says, all I need you to do is say, Sam's guilty. I'll give you a pair of Yeezys and, and everything's going to be okay. That's what the wealthy were doing. They found an innocent person who had no possibility of defending themselves. They knocked on the judge's door and said, hey, if I give you a pair of sandals, will you declare this person guilty? They washed their hands of the deed and sold off innocent men into women and essentially into slavery for seven years. I mean, imagine what that would have been like if you were that man or that woman. What if you were the kids how are you going to put food on the table? How are the, how's the family going to survive? You're not going to be able to see your parent for the next seven years. But what was that to the wealthy? It was no big deal. That human life wasn't worth any more than a pair of shoes. Injustice. That wasn't the only thing that they were doing. The text tells us that they used unjust measurements. When they went to the market and the scoop that was labeled one gallon was actually three quarters of a gallon, but they had to pay full gallon prices. When they sold their wheat, they sold the chaff right along with it. They charged full wheat prices, but only half of it was usable. They took advantage of the poor over and over and over again. And God condemned the Israelites for their injustice. And I think, I mean, that temptation and injustice and oppression and marginalization, certainly that was a temptation for Israel. Certainly that's a temptation in our culture. How often is that a temptation within the church? And I think there might be some subtle, some acceptable ways that we just put up with injustice, oppression, and marginalization. And quickly, I just want to highlight three that maybe could sneak into a Christian's heart. Here's one, favoritism. When we see someone walk in the door, looks like they have their act together, looks like they make six figures. Are we more inclined to go talk to that person compared to the person who maybe doesn't look like they have their act together? 
Are we going to invite people over to our homes that are going to be able to return the favor and have us back into their homes? Or are we going to serve people that maybe can't return the favor? Do we favor those who have money, those who have power, those who have education? I think that's a way we could oppress those who are less fortunate maybe than ourselves. Here's another idea, pornography. I know we talk about pornography being a moral offense against God, and certainly it is. But the pornography industry is so exploitive in how it treats people that when someone's viewing that material, they're taking part essentially in sex slavery. It's taking advantage of the poor, the people on the other side of the screen. How about a third idea? <laughs> how often do we just decide in our hearts that we're just not going to be merciful? And it sounds a little bit like this. It's their fault that they're in that life situation. It's because of all the dumb stuff that they've done. They don't need my help. Look at all the mistakes that they've made. Why would I need to be compassionate towards them? And we like to hold a double standard because when we look at our own resumes and our, old, our own lives and think of all the mistakes that we've made, it's probably not very pretty, is it? But how often do we convince ourselves that we just don't really need to be merciful because of the mistakes that somebody else is made. I think it might be easier than we'd like to admit to show injustice. God hates injustice. And that's one of the things I love about the book of Amos, is this gives us a glimpse into the heart of God, that God has a deep heart for those who are marginalized, for those who are oppressed, for those who are hurting, for those who are poor, which is encouraging because largely our world does not, but God does. And we see that theme throughout Scripture, not just in the book of Amos. Look at the Old Testament law. God allowed for provisions for the Israelites to take care of the poor, something that was countercultural in the countries of that day. Think of what Jesus said in Luke chapter 4, quoting Isaiah 61. The Spirit of the Lord is on me because he's anointed me to preach good news to the poor. Jesus went through town after town preaching the gospel and healing the sick. The Apostle Paul highlighted remembering the poor as a key part of his ministry in Galatians chapter 2. Think of James 1.27. Religion our God and Father accepts as pure and faultless as this to look after orphans and widows in their distress. We see over and over again throughout Scripture that God has a heart for the marginalized and so should we. But as you and I think culturally or contextually about social justice, it's hard for us to watch TV, to scroll through social media, to even watch sports without being inundated with a new cause that we should connect ourselves to. And if you're anything like me, maybe we've struggled with how to respond. And even the calls of social justice have become amplified within the last year. And I'm not saying that's a bad thing. I don't think it is. If there's injustice happening in our world, then as Christians, we can't just dig our heads in the sand and pretend like it doesn't exist just because there's not injustice in our city, in our community, in our culture, in our church. But still, maybe we've asked, how do I respond to our culture's claims of social justice? Because we have to understand that benevolence that's not connected to a deeper worldview, to a deeper framework, is just humanitarianism. And God has not called us simply to be humanitarian. He's called us to be Christians. He's called us to be faithful followers of Christ. And when we compare biblical social justice with cultural social justice, I'm convinced 
that they're built on two radically different foundations. Now, will those two foundations sometimes lead to a similar conclusion? Absolutely. But as Christians, it's essential for us to build a foundation of justice on the right foundation. So tonight, we're not going to analyze cultural social justice. I'm not going to tell you what to think. But instead, we're going to build a biblical framework of social justice. And that starts in the most important place. It starts with the doctrine of God. And you'll see those blanks up on the screen. Those two blanks on the left are foundations. The two blanks on the right are implications. Our first foundation is the doctrine of God. And that might sound obvious, but if we don't understand who God is, if we don't understand him as our creator, then we can't have the right view of our world. If we don't realize that God made us, then it's hard to be accountable to him. We need to understand the holiness of God who never sinned, who will never sin, who can't even, doesn't even have the capacity of sinning. He can't even tolerate sin in his presence. We have to understand the doctrine of God, his love and his goodness. But one of the least talked about doctrines of God is his justice. As one theologian put it, God doesn't simply act with justice. God is justice because God's attributes aren't just additions to his being. God, they describe his being. God doesn't need us to execute justice. God is just. It's simply who he is. In the English language, justice and righteousness are two separate words, though In Greek and in Hebrew, they are actually one and the same word. I'll use them interchangeably tonight. I'll prefer the term justice. So one theologian described the word justice this way. God always acts in accordance to what's right. And he himself is the final standard of what is right. God acts in justice because he himself is just. And he's perfect. I mean, imagine what it would be like to live in a world where we serve a God that is all-powerful, that's all-knowing, and is completely sovereign, but isn't just and isn't good. That'd be horrible, but that's not the world we live in. We serve a God who's all-knowing, and he's just, and he is good. But think of where our world builds its moral framework. If in the Christian worldview, if God is the standard of morality, in a secular worldview— Morality comes from here. We become our own ethical foundation, which is why someone could look at me and say, how dare you say that abortion is wrong? I have the freedom of choice. It's my body. You can't tell me what to do. Someone else could look at me and say, how dare you say that any sex outside of a marriage between a man and a woman is is wrong? Because This is how God made me, and this is the desire that I have. It's not hurting anyone. How dare you tell me what to do? But when we build our moral framework from here, we can do whatever we think is best. But as followers of Christ, our moral framework comes from here. It comes from who God is. And that's the key distinction between cultural social justice and biblical social justice, because our cultural social justice is built on the foundation of the golden rule. You know the golden rule, right? We've known it since we were three. Do unto others as you want done back to you. Now, that's a great principle. It's a biblical principle, but it's not an ultimate principle. Because when we think about justice and building a framework of what it looks like to love and serve others, there's a more foundational command, isn't there? Love the Lord your God 
with your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And then we love our neighbor as ourself. We must start with a love for God, an understanding of who God is. Our world tells us that, you know, we should just do for other people what they want. But that's not what God says. Biblical social justice teaches us that we do for someone else what God wants. See the difference? Think of it this way. Maybe it's best to illustrate with a a story. Let's say there's someone that we know um, that is repeatedly and habitually lazy, that hasn't had a job, can't keep a job, isn't applying for a job, and has come on very hard financial times and doesn't have any food in their pantry. Now, on my way home, and, I, you know, let's say I have a relationship with this person. Let's say I see him at McDonald's, and I'm going in to get my McDouble because I'm starving after young adults on a Monday night. And this person says, hey, Sam, you know, man, man I'm starving. Could you just buy me a McDouble? What would cultural social justice say? Absolutely. It's a buck. If that was you, you'd want to do the same thing. What would God say? Listen to Leviticus chapter 19. Yes, I said Leviticus. When you reap the harvest of your land, you shall not reap your field right up to the edge, nor shall you gather the gleanings after your harvest. You shall leave them for the poor and the sojourner. I'm the Lord your God. (laughs) So why did I read out of Leviticus? Well, because this is the first social program in the history of the world. You see what God instituted? He said, Israelites, when you harvest your field, leave the edge so that if there's a, a poor person, if there's the sojourner, someone who doesn't have a home among you, that they can go and take care of themselves, that they can gather the food. It wasn't a handout, but it was a way for the poor to provide for themselves. I mean, Paul even takes that a step farther in 2, Corinthians, or 2 Thessalonians 3.10. He's talking about benevolence programs in the church. And he says, if anyone doesn't work, then they shouldn't eat, which sounds really harsh. What Paul is saying is that, you know, if someone's not willing to work for themselves, then the church shouldn't be putting food on their table. Sounds harsh. Now, let me be clear. I'm not talking about people who are unable to work. And that could be for a health reason, a personal reason, any number of reasons. I'm not talking about someone who works in the home like a stay-at-home parent. Simply, I'm just referring to someone who is unwilling to work. So let's go back to our illustration. I'm at McDonald's. How would God desire us to respond in that situation? The easiest thing for me to do would be to pull out a dollar and get him a McDouble. And I don't know if this is a perfect idea. I mean, it's a hypothetical situation. But what if we did something like this? Ah, I'm so sorry you're hungry, and I would love to buy you dinner. So why don't we have a McDouble together? But afterwards... You know, what if we go back to my house and we can work together to shovel my driveway? It snowed last night. I want you to earn your food. And I haven't shoveled yet because <laughs> I had a busy day. Maybe it's a bad idea. Maybe it's a good idea. I don't know. I'm not saying that it's wrong for us to give free food to people. But I'm encouraging us to maybe think a little more broadly about social justice. Not just doing for someone else what they want, but what God might want for them. So that's our first foundation. Here's our second foundation, the compassion of Christ, the compassion of Christ. 
Let me read from one of my favorite passages in the book of Romans. It says this, While we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare to die. But God shows his love for us that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. This is one of my favorite passages in Romans. Because Paul is saying, if Sam or Paul or Fritz or any of us, if we were going to take a bullet for someone, it's probably not going to be a criminal on death row. If I'm going to die for somebody, it's going to be somebody that I love. It's going to be somebody that I respect, right? If we're being honest. What's Paul saying Jesus did? Jesus died for us. Not while we were his friends, not while we were adopted into his family. No, while we were sinners, while we were his enemies, while we were dead in our trespasses and sins. Jesus has shown us the ultimate act of compassion. And that's the goodness of the gospel that teaches us that though in our sin, we're more desperate than we could ever imagine. But because of the gospel, we're more loved in Christ than we could ever imagine. It's a beautiful picture of the compassion of Christ. And before we think about what it means to be compassionate towards somebody else, we have to understand what it means to be loved by Jesus. And that's the best news on the planet. I mean, it starts with bad news, right? That we're sinful, we're separated from God, we've earned from our own behavior, eternity separated from God in hell. That's the worst possible news. But Jesus lived in our place. He died in our place. He rose in our place. Romans 10, 9 says, if we confess with our mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in our heart that God raised him from the dead, we'll be saved. Each one of us have to cross that line, saying that I believe Jesus is Lord. Lord means boss, master. It means turning away from our old way of life and following Christ and believing that he was raised from the dead, believing that when he died, he paid the price for our sin. Each one of us have to come to that point in our life. Do you believe in Christ? Have you experienced his compassion? If not, then it's impossible for us to show true justice to the world around us. But once we've experienced the compassion of Christ, then we've been justified by his blood. He's saved us from God's wrath. It's amazing. And before we can understand biblical social justice, we have to understand the compassion of Christ and the doctrine of God. And both of those then lead to a couple implications. And here's our third blank. The doctrine of God then leads to the pursuit of God. The doctrine of God leads to the pursuit of God. And we see that littered all throughout the book of Amos. It's really cool. Chapter 5, verse 4, thus says the Lord of the house of Israel, seek me and live. And verse 6, seek the Lord and live. God's commanding his people to seek after him. Because once we've experienced God and we understand his goodness and his grace in our life, then we have no choice but to run after him, to pursue him, to deepen in our relationship with him. Because when we have that relationship with Christ, then God has reconciled us to himself. He's adopted us into his family. He's made us a new creation. He's promised us eternity. He's forgiven us of our sins. And we could go on and on with the blessings that God has given us in Christ. We must be pursuing God. That's going to be our job through all of eternity. So we might as well start today. Well, how does that fit with social justice? It sounds completely unrelated. Well, actually, it's important. Because before we can think about our horizontal relationships with others, we have to understand our vertical relationship with our Creator. Before we can pursue good, we must pursue God. Because our horizontal relationships, they have to first be grounded in our relationship with God because we are ambassadors for Christ. Everything that we do is connected to our relationship with God. 
Everything that we do for someone else is on behalf of what Christ has done for us. So there is no justice initiative that can be disconnected from the gospel, from what God has done in our hearts. Horizontal justice must always flow from the will and the desire of our creator. Well, that leads to our final implication, that final box. A compassion for Christ leads to the uh, compassion for people. Once we've experienced the compassion of Christ, a, a deeper love than we could ever imagine, we realize that there is no one on this planet that is beyond the love of Christ. There is no one on this earth that is beyond the hope of the gospel, which means there is no one that is too far gone for our love, for our compassion, and for our grace. Because Jesus reached down and offered us salvation at the lowest possible point. It's not our job. We don't have the prerogative to say, ah, they're just too bad for Jesus. Ah, they're too far gone for Christ. It's the compassion of Christ, ultimately, that fuels our compassion for people. And Amos gives us my favorite summary of social justice in the whole book of Amos. Chapter 5, verses 14 and 15 says this, Seek good and not evil, that you may live. And so the Lord, the God of hosts, will be with you as you've said. Hate evil and love good. Establish justice in the gate. It may be that the Lord, the God of hosts, will be gracious to the remnant of Joseph. What a great template for social justice. To hate evil to love good, to establish justice. In a world that celebrates evil, we need to hate it. In a world that hates good, we need to love good. In a world where we could see injustice happening around us, we need to fight for justice. We need to establish justice in the gate. And that sounds really good on paper. You know, we could put that in a slogan. That would be a really good bumper, bumper sticker. But what does that look like? How do we do that? Well, I've got three ideas of application for us as we talk about biblical social justice. First, biblical social justice is multi-dimensional. In the past, Christianity has done a great job separating missions and benevolence. Missions is when we go to another country or we go to the other side of town and we talk to somebody about Jesus and we share the gospel. And then benevolence is when we meet somebody's physical needs. Maybe we pay their rent, or we give them food, or any number of physical needs. And we've divorced the two. I had a professor in college that said missions is like an airplane. It has two wings, physical needs and spiritual needs. And it's impossible to fly an airplane without a wing. I don't know if you've tried, but I've heard it doesn't work. And let me just explain how that works, the, another hypothetical situation. You know, let's say... On my way out of church tonight, somebody comes walking into the building, and I'm the last one here, and, and he says, I'm so sorry, but I don't have a coat, and I haven't eaten in a couple days. I'm starving. Um, is there anything you could do to help me out? And I look at him, and I say, oh, sir, man shall not live on bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. I give him a Bible, and I say, have a great night. That'd probably feel a little bit like a slap in the face, wouldn't it? But come on, it's meeting a spiritual need. I just gave a guy a Bible. Can that be so bad? I think maybe a better approach would be, ah, 
come on in. I think I have some food in the fridge. We've got an extra coat around here somewhere. And then we open up the Bible and we talk about Jesus. Physical needs and spiritual needs. But the church, not Highland, but the church historically, has swung the pendulum so far in the other direction, in the 20th century in particular, with a movement called the social gospel, where the church believed that all these things that I'm doing, I'm meeting people's physical needs, that's sharing the gospel. And as long as I'm doing good for other people, then that's great. We can't fly an airplane with one wing. <laughs> we need to meet people's spiritual needs. If all we're meeting is physical needs, it would look a little bit like, like this. I mean, imagine a criminal a lawyer who's defending a guy who's on death row. And he knows the man is innocent, and he has evidence that the man is innocent. But this lawyer, out of the benevolence of his heart, spends thousands of dollars paying for this man uh, to live in the Hilton before he is executed. Come on, he'd be meeting a physical need. Like, that'd be really generous, right? Oh, that'd be like the worst thing he could do. He's just making him more comfortable on his way to execution. And when all we do is meet somebody's physical needs, we're just making people a little more comfortable as they're headed towards eternity separated from God. Just meeting physical needs is not the most generous thing, benevolent thing we could do. We need to meet physical needs, but friends, if we don't meet spiritual needs, we're missing our call as followers of Christ. Biblical social justice is multi-dimensional. Maybe that means if we're participating in a ministry in town where we're giving people food, that instead of just putting food on their plate, maybe we try to have a conversation with them over dinner and try to talk about Jesus with them. Or there have been some in our young adult family that have put together packages for the care packages for the homeless community right before winter starts with warm uh, food or with blankets. And instead of just handing that to them, maybe we could put in a gospel track or a Bible, or maybe we could have a conversation about their story, physical needs and spiritual needs. We need to do both. Second, biblical social justice requires action. Biblical social justice requires action. There's many millennials that can get fired up. Many of us can get fired up about justice initiatives. That's a good thing. Wearing the t-shirt and getting the wristband and and posting on Facebook or on Instagram. And, but then when it's time to put our money where our mouth is, that's where the train seems to stop. It's good to get fired up about good justice initiatives, but if we really want to make a difference, it requires action. It requires cost. Maybe in our time, in our talents, or in our treasures. And I know if you're anything like me, <laughs> What I want to do to make a difference in the world around me is I just want to be able to write a check and say, here, I want to help make a difference. And I feel good about myself. I can pat myself on the back. But money doesn't fix everything. Money doesn't fix most things. And that's our uh, little bit into our third uh, application point is this. Uh, good intentions don't equal great results. They sometimes do but they definitely don't always. Maybe I can explain with a story. Maybe you've seen the movie Hotel Rwanda. Uh, if not, I'd put that on your watch list. It's one of those perspective-altering, get-your-head-out-of-the-sand sort of movies. Not a happy movie at all. It chronicles the Rwandan genocide in the 90s. One of the most 
horrific atrocities in my generation, at least. Um, but after the Rwandan genocide was completed, there was a man named Jean, who was a survivor of the genocide. And Jean saw a business opportunity in his small village in Rwanda. He had a couple chickens that produced eggs. And he saw a need for cheap protein in his community because people need food. So he developed a poultry business. And as he sold his eggs for a pretty cheap price, then that would enable him to buy another chicken and he could sell some more eggs. And over the next couple of months, he was able to build a pretty good business. A couple months later, a very well-intentioned church in North America decided they wanted to adopt Gene's community. And they decided they were going to start sending over relief. They're sending over money. They wanted to help out the community. And they knew they needed food. So they started paying to import eggs from another community into Gene's town. And the eggs were free. Well, what did that do to Gene's business? It died a slow death. And then, in order to make ends meet, Gene had to sell his most valuable asset, which were his chickens. Well, a year later, the church decided that the town didn't need their help anymore, and they were going to move on to another more pressing problem, so they pulled out all of their funding. So then what happened to the town? They were in a worse place than they were before. There was no eggs, there were no chickens, and there was no money. Now, this church in North America had great intentions. They wanted to make a difference. They gave generously. But good intentions don't always equal great results. And I share that story to remind us that getting involved in something like global poverty takes work. It takes more than just writing a check. If money alone could fix generational poverty across the world, we would have fixed it. There have been trillions upon trillions of dollars that have poured into poverty relief, and we still have poverty. Am I saying that it's a problem that's impossible to fix or isn't worth helping with? No, I'm not saying that. I'm saying it takes a little more work than writing a check and having good intentions. And these are conversations that could last a lot longer than the time that we have tonight, which is why in the back of your handout, I've included a couple resources. And if some of these things intrigue you, there's some books there that could be helpful. There's some websites there that could be helpful. And one I want to highlight is Hope International. They've got a five-minute video on their website. If you do anything this week, just watch their five-minute video. And it, they're pushing the boundaries of microfinance. It's really cool stuff. It's much... Uh, it's really cool. It's much deeper than just writing a check. So I'd encourage you to just watch their informational video to see what their ministry is about. But if we boil it down and to think about biblical social justice, when we're confronted with the justice issue in our world today, what should we do? Well, I want us to ask one simple question. What would Jesus do? As we pursue God, as we seek to love our community and share the gospel with the world around us, how would Jesus respond? And I'm convinced that if we ask that question a little more often, I think the world might look like a different place. Let's pray together. Father, thanks for a challenge from the book of Amos tonight. Um, give us your heart of justice for those in our world, in our society, even in our community that might be marginalized or oppressed, that might be the recipients of injustice. 
Father, for any moment that we might contribute, uh, reveal those to us, allow us to be men and women of repentance. And if there's opportunities that you put in front of us where we can fight for justice, where we can attach our hearts to initiatives that are also on your heart, Father, give us wisdom on how we might be faithful ambassadors for Christ in our world, always sharing the gospel with the world that needs Christ now more than ever. In Jesus' name, amen.